Welcome to the Truth Lover video podcast presented by Love and Truth Party. I'm your host, Will Pye, author, retreat leader, and founder of Love and Truth Party. Love and Truth Party is a self-organizing, self-replicating community and movement of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating health, healing, and happiness, liberating humanity from the matrix of fear and self-loathing. Find us and join our mailing list at loveandtruthparty.org. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unit of consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this clarity as new earth ninjas our playful avatar. We do so in the spirit of play, holding the paradox that all is well, even and including all collective crises, while simultaneously being moved to act to lessen suffering and serve the creation of conscious culture and society. I'm really thrilled to be joined today by Gabor Mate. And uh, Gabor tells me that he's quite tired of hearing his full um, biography. So I'll just share a little bit about what I know about you, Gabor. And um, I think to a lot of our viewers, you'll be very well known already. Um, you're a, a trauma expert. I know you've done a lot of work with people um, uh, in, in trauma and particularly addiction. The book that first brought you to my attention was um, uh, in the realm of hungry ghosts. My good friend is an absolute uh, uh, devotee of that particular text. Um, when the Body Says No was another one of your uh, extraordinary books that's been very popular. Um, and you have a book upcoming that will be out in 2022. Um, can you remind me of, actually I've got the title here, The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. Um, I love that title. I'm looking forward to, to reading that, not least because I'm, I'm in it, apparently. You've advised me, which is, which is exciting. Um, and I guess that brings us to a, a personal interest in your, um, in, in your work and the, the title that we're going to be exploring today in um, the, uh, bringing it up here, the mind-body unity in illness and health. And as someone that's been diagnosed with a, with a brain tumor and been fascinated by mind-body medicine, that's a, a really rich topic for me. So thank you for giving of your time today and, and joining us, Gabor. I appreciate it. Thank you, Will. It's nice to be uh, with you. And you've been uh, immersed in the first book in 13 years. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're at in, in that process and um, what, what's, what, what's the myth of normal? So the assumption um, in our society is that people who get sick, whether what we call mental illness or physical illness, there's something abnormal about them. I'm arguing that actually illness, no matter what form, I'm talking about chronic illness particularly, um, is actually a normal response to abnormal circumstances. So that it's not the individual who's abnormal. It's the culture that generates so many illnesses. That's abnormal. Yeah, it's an insane culture in the sense that it... Um, well, Eric Fromm, a great social psychologist in the first half of the 20th century, he said that um, mental health is not an individual fitting into society, but a society meeting people's individual needs for humanity which flips it around. And I'm saying is that this is a society that does not meet human needs. It's an insane culture. And that illness shows up as a response, as a normal response on abnormal circumstances on the part of people who are particularly sensitive or on the part of people who've had more than the, their share of insanity loaded down upon them, a cultural insanity uh, through the culture, through the family of origin, through the multi-generational history, um, through, through their position in society, whether as affected by class or race, social position, and so on. And we can see that uh, here in North America, for example, or in, in the UK. I'm not sure what the situation here is, is, is in Australia, but if, you, if we look at the COVID um, epidemic, who does it hit? 
it doesn't, you know, we, we say we're all in it together, but really, in a sense, we are, and nobody's immune, but disproportionately, it hits and kills people of color, of minority status, of lower economic status, and, and, and or, or the discarded elderly in nursing homes who are living under very poor conditions. So whose who's is the insanity? The society that creates these divisions or is the abnormality an individual? I'm saying it's, you have to look at the larger picture. And that insanity appears to be uh, particularly prevalent in North America, UK, Australia, in, in cultures that like to regard themselves as being more civilized or technologically advanced. But is, is that fair to say, or do you see it more as a, as a global uh, a global insanity. Well, it's highly telling that the United States, um, which regards itself as the uh, leader of the world in so many ways, and where certainly you have incredibly impressive advanced science, the U.S. has 4% of the world's population, but 20% of the deaths in the world have happened in the U.S. Well, that means there's a huge disconnect between intellectual knowledge and life on the ground. I mean, it's, it's a striking disproportion. And um, certainly this idea of being more civilized that's that's an interesting perspective because compared to who and really the whole idea of civilization as a form of superiority over other cultures is really an outcome of colonialism and, and, and Australia and Canada and, and the US uh, were all founded on extreme forms of colonialism, including mass murder. The UK, Britain, England specifically, um, created its wealth and its world domination while it still had it through the ruthless suppression of indigenous peoples all over the world. And so these countries are responsible for some historically, not even controversially real mass killings and suppression. And then they imagine that they're civilized, in a, which to them means a some kind of a positive advantage over the people that they have either extirpated or suppressed. And um, how much do you think that sort of beginning, that level of traumatic beginning to a country such as Canada or, or Australia or the US, we consider slavery as uh, another factor. Like how, how much is that and a, a cause for the insanity, a, a cause for the disturbance in, in, that, in that collective? Well, I think the key factor here is denial. I mean, I find that when I speak with people individually about their health conditions, very often, we can talk about this, but very often what instigated or helped instigate the illness is the degree of denying their own pain. And it's that attempt to suppress pain that leads to all kinds of behaviors and patterns that in my view foment illness or help to foment illness. Now, denial is a major factor in, um, in these uh, post-colonial cultures like the US, Canada, UK and Australia we even when we talk about it now and there's in Canada, in Canada there's much more conversation about this now than there used to be and in the US in light of the shocking murder of George Floyd police murder of George Floyd there's much more conversation about it but denial is still a major social factor 
and that denial spreads into people's personalized individual lives and relationships. So it's a huge factor. And just today in the US, there's a report published by a commission called the 1776 Commission, which is really a right-wing cabal of pseudo-intellectuals brought together by Donald Trump to counter the growing awareness around slavery and the genocide of natives, you know, to, to, to somehow romanticize what happened and to, and to whitewash it, whitewash, literally whitewash it. Um, so there's still a powerful movement of denial uh, and, and that same denial that exists on the social historical level also shows up in personal lives. And that denial, that not meeting of pain, uh, it hinders both personal and, and collective healing. Is this is this true to say that we we, we need to um, we need to meet our own pain? We need to come into contact with our with our deepest hurts and and, and, and wounds. Yes, and uh, you know. And of course, I've read your book, um, Blessed with a Brain Tumor, and, and, and you and I have talked, and, and I know that part of your process and, and part of what's allowed you to deal so gracefully and, to my mind, courageously with your medical condition has been your willingness to embrace your vulnerability. But, but in this society, there's real escape from vulnerability. And that same escape from vulnerability um, contributes a lot to to people becoming ill yeah yeah it's curious it's interesting to hear that perspective because i sometimes look at the whole blessed with a brain tumor just even the title and i think oh, it's, it's such an enneagram seven sort of um positive perspective upon something that's um you know ultimately highly likely to be to be a terminal condition though i didn't know that when i chose that title i thought it was a low grade glioma at this point so yes yeah, so I can also locate in myself where I um, numb or deaden or, or don't um, stay awake or open to my to my pain to my to my trauma so um, yeah so it's interesting to to hear that perspective so the, in, in terms of the the mind-body union and you know, the union of 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 a healthy mind and a healthy body. I'd love to hear a little bit more about like some of the, the intricacies of that, because I know that some of the data, particularly around the immune system um, is, is quite remarkable. So if I am an individual or, 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 a, or a culture that's looking to, to heal, to have less illness, less mental, physical manifestations, what, uh, what what does that look like? What what does the um, meeting of my own pain? What does that result in? How does that affect the the body's functioning? Well, I, uh, I'm sort of a stickler for language. So hmm. when you said my body union, I thought no, it's not a union, because when you think of a union, you, you think of disparate entities joining together. So I don't use the word union, I use the word unity. It's not that different things join together to form a union, it's that they were never separate. This is the problem with the English language in many areas, but specifically here, isn't it? We have this idea of body and mind. My understanding is in Mandarin, and body-mind is the word. It's one word to point to this already existing unity. I didn't know that about Mandarin, but I do know that um, one of the... Um, seminal researchers in the field, uh, Dr. Candice Peart, who, who did a lot to make us aware of the physiological unity. He, she also, when it came to talk about this phenomena, she said, mind, mind body, that's one word, you know? She came to that herself. I don't think she knew any Mandarin antecedent for it, but that's what she came to. Now, um, Let me give you one example, which is a study that was done a couple of years ago now. It found that women with post-traumatic stress disorder had doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. 
Interestingly, this is in a Harvard study, it was also found that women whose current symptoms of PTSD were less because perhaps they've had some therapy or medication or something, their risk was less. Mm. Now, if that was the only study ever done, it still should send every physician and every psychologist running to learn about the mind-body unity. Because that clearly shows that people's emotional states have a deep impact on their physiology. And of course, that's not the only study. There's, it's one of thousands of studies, multiple thousands of studies, innumerable studies pointing to the same thing. So clearly, what happens to us emotionally and on the thought level has an impact physiologically and of course, vice versa. Now, why is that? It's simply because it's a unit. It's not different. It's not that here's the mind, here's the body, here's the nervous system, here's the cardiovascular system. That seems to be the case because specifically in medicine, for obvious reasons, uh, these specialties have developed. I mean, if I had a heart problem, I'm glad to be able to go to a cardiologist who really understands how the cardiovascular system and the valves of my heart and the muscles of my heart and the blood vessels that serve it and how that functions and can intervene when necessary or tell me what to do when necessary. So that's good. But what's been lost in the process is forgetting that in no real sense is the cardiovascular system separate from our nervous system or from our immune apparatus, or from our emotional system in the brain, or from the gut, or from a hormonal apparatus. So, while there's been tremendous medical advances, having lost the sense of the unity, we're just left with dealing with biological events instead of looking at the person's whole life. So that I'm absolutely convinced that most gynecologists are not aware of the study about the PTSD. And if they, even if they were aware of it, they wouldn't know what to do with it because their training doesn't allow them to embrace the unity. And yet I know with their ovarian cancers or other cancers, other chronic illnesses, when people are guided to either by grace or by somebody else or somehow to consider the illness, not just as a separate biological event, but as a manifestation of their lives. And they take on that life in a deep way. They have a chance of doing much better. I know that you've interviewed uh, Jeff Rediger. Um, have you not? No. Oh, you haven't? Oh, I thought you had. Je Dr. Jeff Rediger, who wrote this book called Cured. Um, I think I think I have intended to. Maybe that's what we spoke about, because I've uh, I've read some. I haven't read Cured, but I've read some extracts. And uh, yeah, it's yes. an extraordinary book. So Jeff is a Harvard physician psychiatrist who looked at what he called, what's called spontaneous remission. These are people who, <clears throat> even after the failure of medical treatment, or despite having refused medical treatment, and therefore being consigned to a terminal diagnosis, all of a sudden the disease goes away. Not all of a sudden, but the disease goes away. And that's called spontaneous remission. <clears throat> and as Jeff points out, and as I have found, talking to many people and other researchers have found, there's nothing spontaneous about these remissions. It really has to do with the transformation in that person's relationship to themselves and, and their world. Which means that how they were relating to themselves before had something to do with the onset of their illness. But this isn't um, studied in medical schools and, and this body of knowledge is just somehow not melded with the usual medical awareness. And particularly, I, I was talking about denial and, and particularly the um, repression of emotions. 
repression of vulnerability and trying to compensate through behaviors such as being nice and being friendly and being helpful even at your own cost these things have an effect on the effect on the immune system and the hormone apparatus so they promote illness um, or <clears throat> the attempts to run away from vulnerability um, when, when you had a lot of pain a lot of anger because a child and <clears throat> there was too much for you to bear so you push it down not that you do it but your unconscious does it automatically push all that stuff down well what's another word for pushing down depression so then you got a so-called mental illness which isn't an illness in a certain sense mm. we, can, we can look about it from an illness perspective but in a larger sense it's a normal response to an abnormal situation <laughs> or you don't want to feel your vulnerability not that you want to feel it. it's too much for you and you're driven to escape from it and then what do you do then you self-medicate with cocaine or alcohol or heroin or crystal meth and now you've got addiction and i could go on and on and on but the point is that um illness chronic illness particularly um and i'm not speaking about infectious diseases like covid although that's an interesting separate conversation in itself but <clears throat> at least for what we recognize as chronic illnesses uh, that mind-body unity is the key factor to understand both in uh, explaining the onset and then in um, the the attempt to heal there's a fundamental sort of flaw in our in our thinking and this idea of, of, of separation the atomization of, of of people and of body parts and and, and so on it is, is this why it seems to be so challenging for, you know, I've, I've, I've encountered a, a, a supposed specialist on the brain advised me that um, uh, attitude, uh, diet, and exercise, so not, not just one, but all three were apparently irrelevant in creating a health outcome with, with, with cancer, which is an astonishing thing to hear someone say this would be a few years ago, you know, in the 21st century. So with the wealth of data that we have and you know, holistic thinking is not something that's brand new, right? It's, you know, we've been thinking more holistically and since the, the 60s and the 70s, we could say the environmental movement and so on. But wh why are we, why, why or, or is it true to say, why, I, I feel it is true to say that we're still struggling to take on to integrate a new way of thinking into our approach to health and well-being, um, why is why is that the case? Because it's it's fairly simple, is it not, to to recognize this uh, sort of unit of thinking? So it's very simple, and, and traditional healing practices from around the world have always intuitively known about that unity. They've assumed it. No, they haven't had the technology and the science and the amazing techniques that we have. But why throw out the one and in order to embrace the other? You know, now, what's interesting about your physician who said that to you is when you speak to Jeff Rediger and other people who study these so-called spontaneous remissions, and they've been studied, and I've studied such cases where I actually have access to the medical records. So it's not just a story that somebody's telling me, but I'm actually talking to their doctors and so on. What's almost universal is in these cases when people heal spontaneously, so-called from say multiple sclerosis or in some cases from cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or something, the specialists never want to hear about what happened or what mm -hmm. they did. At, 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 the, at the very most, they'll say, at the very best, they'll say, hey, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Yeah. But they won't really know what they want. They don't want to know what the person actually did. Now, your friend who said about diet and you know attitude and so on. What you should really be saying is, I don't really understand it about those things. Hmm. That'd be an honest thing to say. I don't know if it's true or not, but I don't know anything about it. That'd be honest. 
That's the first comment on his comment. Um, the, the second comment is that there's something embedded here that's not seen. When he's talking about attitude, mental attitude, and and uh, diet, you know, and exercise or whatever else you said, that implies that this person engaging in those activities have taken on a new attitude towards themselves. If I want to spend time on my body exercising, if I'm going to nourish it with the best foods possible, if I'm going to meditate, if I'm going to do yoga, whatever I'm going to do, it means that I have now taken on a nourishing, nurturing attitude towards myself which most people who develop illness never had. In fact, all people who develop illness never had. So it's not just these specific technical things that people do, like diet and exercise. There's a transformation in the cases which are most profound. There's a transformation in people's relationship to themselves. And that's what just Red Jeff Rediger found when he documented all these cases of so-called spontaneous remission. So, but of course you're, medical friend would have no idea about that because nothing in his training prepared him for it. Now you ask why not? There's a whole lot of factors here and I, 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 I'll touch upon them briefly. One is who, who goes to medical school? People who are really ambitious, really driven, workaholics, people whose brains are often split from their bodies. They're not in touch with their emotions very often. Usually science graduates. And there's a merciless set of hoops you have to jump through to get into medical school. Medical training itself is highly traumatic for a lot of people. Now, let me tell you one quick example. There's a structure at the end of your chromosomes called telomeres. Telomeres are strands of DNA material that function like the glue at the end of a shoelace that keeps the strands from unraveling. Aging and stress shortens the telomeres and the shorter the telomeres, the more prone you are for illness or, 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 or for death, you know. They looked at the telomeres of medical students. In one year under the impact of medical training, it shortened a lot more than other university students. So it's highly stressful to be in medical school. And then, and you have to really ignore yourself. Don't, you don't sleep, you, you have authoritarian teachers who often demean you, uh, emotionally abuse you. Um, and then, and you go through this for years and years and years and years, especially if you're gonna be a specialist. And then you're out in the world and the world rewards you for ignoring your own needs. You know, when I was a family physician and I ignored myself and my own needs and my family, but I was always there for my patients. Guess what? What a great doctor. People love him. So selfless, so available. So at what cost? And, you know, then there's the practical fact that most of the studies or much of the research that, that doctors get is generated by pharmaceutical industry um, needs, which doesn't make the research wrong. It just means that there's not a whole lot of money to be made in teaching people about the mind-body unity. Not only that, it's easier to prescribe a pill than to talk to somebody about their lives for a whole hour. So there's all kinds of reasons, not to mention the mind-body separation isn't restricted to the medical profession. It um, it characterizes the whole of society. Because if you're gonna have uh, a system such as we do, where you're gonna ask people to do work that doesn't mean a thing to them and to work hard under stressed conditions and to buy products they don't need and to convince them that they need them, what kind of people do you want to generate or, or educate or, or bring up? 
people deeply in touch with themselves and knowing their own needs and honoring themselves, or people who are separated from themselves who don't not aware of their emotional needs and who can be manipulated. Which kind of person would you rather ha have if you were to set up such a system? So not that there's a plot or a conspiracy here, but this system by its very nature uh, rears people separated from their own bodies. The, the, the minds are separated from their bodies and they don't understand the importance of honoring their vulnerability and their emotions. And how is that changing? Because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an optimist and I you know, believe in evolution and believe in growing awareness. And along the journey, along my, my health journey, I've met you know, many extraordinary people. Of course, you're amongst them who are very much advocating, articulating a new paradigm, a new way of healthcare, and a, a new way of being human, a new way of um, thinking about the world, a new world view. You mentioned Jeff Rediger, um, Dr. Kelly Turner, Radical Remissions is another great book, Lesser Rankin. You know, there's, there's, there's a, there is a lot happening to, to change this. Um, so I wonder, in, in your writing and your research around uh, the insanity, what, what, what are you seeing in an emergent sanity, in a, a, a more intelligent, more evidence-based way of being healthy, of treating humans, of educating humans. Yes. So um, I personally think that things are going to get worse before they get better. Hmm. But at this, you know, and um, but they will get better, I think, for humanity in the long so, term. So some people might say, "Well, worse. You know, things have got pretty bad with our." Uh, depression stats, with our cancer stats, with um, you know, COVID right now, with the environmental circumstance, you know, the, the, the long list of crises we face. So you think there's still a sort of a, a deeper dive to happen before That's, they get better? I'm no prophet, but I mean, or who knows if I'm a prophet or not. Maybe a hundred years from now, you'll know if I'm a prophet or not. Mm. But neither, I, neither you and I will be there to, to know. Um, but um, uh, um, uh, an Italian Marxist intellectual Gramsci talked about optimism of the will, pessimism of the pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. So even in the face of the intellect recognizing that things are bad and getting worse, there's still this human will for for transformation and possibility, and. Um, Each system has its own dialectics so that things not only happen, they also create their own opposite. So as the crisis is deepening, more and more people are waking up as a result. The Greek playwright Aeschylus in one of his plays talked about the gods having made us in such a way that we human beings have to suffer into truth suffer into truth and how many people in their personal lives have found out to be the case and if you look at social movements usually transformative social transformative social movements say black lives matter black lives matter or civil rights movement or any number of working class union organizing and so on they all happened as a result of intense suffering so I hate to say it, and I don't mean to say this in any punitive way, but we haven't suffered enough yet to wake up as a society. So that's what I mean, that things are going to get worse. And until we wake up, things are going to get worse. But at the same time, just as you point out, consciousness is also rising on a part of a lot of people. And, you know, just in the um, twenty twenty three the quarter of a decade sorry quarter of a century I wish it was quarter of a decade uh, makes me a lot younger but quarter of a century 
since I've been involved in understanding these issues and talking about them, writing about them as a practicing physician. And then since I retired, more or less full-time is what I do. There's a lot more listening. Just I'm speaking, I'm speaking of my personal experience now. And thank God I'm far from the only one. Um, there's a lot more listening to this perspective. A lot more people researching it, talking about it, wanting to hear about it, wanting to live it, and so on. And <clears throat> I'm speaking specifically within the medical trauma world. Then there's all the spiritual awakening that's happening in so many realms, you know. Um, so, so the as the problem, as the contradictions sharpen, more and more people are waking up as well. And um, this is the source of optimism. And I fundamentally, I believe in in the human drive for truth, you know, and, and ultimately, I think that will win out. That's my belief. It's my faith. I can't prove it. But I may not necessarily see to live it out, live to see it happen. And that's another thing we have to accept is that it's not about us as individuals. It's about us, us as a as an as a world. And so that's where the optimism is. And look, uh, well, I just to speak about myself. I'm far from a completely baked cookie yet, you know, and and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how much time I got left, but I know I've just turned seventy-seven, and not that I not that I relish the idea of aging as such, but I'm glad I'm not as stupid as I was when I was seventy-six, you know, so growth transformation they do happen so that's those are the grounds for optimism what have what have been the key if you look back at that last year or maybe easier to look back at a longer period of time what are the key things that you've learned what, what's been the, the transformations in your mind body and your body mind that you know you, you can see have been key for your well-being for your becoming more more well baked as a as, as a cookie. Half baked. <laughs> I'm half baked. How's that? <laughs> um, well, recognizing that as a privileged middle class person, the unhappiness and the stresses that show up in my life. I generate them myself. That means I don't have to. Number one. Number two, that every upset and stress that I generate is based on some trauma rooted childhood programming. And I can come to terms with that and relate to it differently. I don't have to be guided and controlled by it. Um, Thirdly, that there are specific practices that one can engage in um, that supports one's healing and one's health that anybody could do. Um, fourthly, that I teach a course called Compassionate Inquiry uh, online to, to therapists and people that work with people, but it's also available for lay people in a different format. But the essence of compassion inquiry is that everything that happens, everything that you experience, rather than rejecting it, you can inquire into compassionately with compassion for yourself and for everybody. Um, that flowing from all that, I am responsible. I mean, I'm responsible doesn't mean that I'm to blame or you're to blame, but uh, you can develop responsibility. You can develop the capacity to respond in a way that you choose. I mean, you, you're going through what to most of us and to me certainly would seem like an extraordinarily difficult experience. But what I've seen of you, you have 
taken responsibility. You've decided consciously, how am I going to respond to this? It's not just going to happen to me. I have the capacity to respond. I have response ability. Yeah, hard, hard fought responsibility as well. You know, I think we, there's a great example. We, we witness or observe reactivity and see its dysfunctional effects upon relationships or how we interact with the world. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's definitely true for me that that, that responsibility has been cultivated through, through state training and uh, meditation primarily. Um, and, a, and a lot of body practice, a lot of yoga and chugung to, you know, to get comfortable with discomfort and um, yeah. feel and more. You, same with me, like um, all these things I've been teaching for a long time now, but in significant ways, I've still been very reactive when things happen, you know, and just two months, not, not less, not two months ago, less than a month ago, not less than a month ago, almost exactly a month ago, I picked up again a twice daily yoga practice that I had learned some years ago, but I had dropped because I was too busy writing and who had time and this kind of stuff, you know, which didn't mean I didn't have time to sit on YouTube and watch uh, football game replays, you know, soccer game replays and reading about how many goals Mo Salah scored for Liverpool or, you you're know. Not, you're not a Liverpool fan as well, are you? That's my uh, online habit is to study the latest Liverpool news. Isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I don't pick favourites. I'm sort of, but the whole Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, you know, um, triad and who's doing what and, you know, is Messi going to leave Barcelona? Who cares? <laughs> but in, in all this, in all this, miasma of not having enough time to look after myself isn't that amazing i had time for all that so what i'm trying to say is that a month ago i began this twice daily yoga practice again knock on wood but let me tell you what a huge difference it's made in my non-reactivity you know and uh, just the capacity to be with whatever arises it's very simple now so that when we tear ourselves, but there's not enough time. That's already a that's already a a point of view, and 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 underneath that point of view, you know what there is? There is a lack of self valuation. Hmm. There's an attitude that my soul and my body and my mind they don't deserve paying attention to and 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 nurturing and looking after. And so much in this culture pulls people away from self-regard that way. You know, so if you look at, my God, there's some nine-year-old kid, he's on TikTok from Texas. I think a Filipino family was living in Texas, a Filipino origin family. And this kid tests toys yeah, he's the most successful, uh, rich um, YouTuber, I think, isn't he? He unwraps several well, toys his, a day. One of his little toy demonstrations. <laughs> you know, a whole lot of my YouTube, a whole lot of my lectures and talks have been put on YouTube, you know? And uh, I think the most successful one has been seen something like two million times. You know how many views this kid has had for this toy demonstration? Tens, over hundreds. Two, over two billion. <laughs> <laughs> and that's for kids, or for adults. If you look at American football and the latest highlights from the most recent playoff games, millions of views, which means that people are drawn to pay attention to things that divert them, distract them, but don't in any way uh, feed their souls or, or nurture their awareness. And this society is based on that. And, you know, I get hooked into it. Just as I said, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying it takes a lot of responsibility to actually say to oneself, you know what, I matter. 
But not only do I matter, the people in my lives matter. That, that I should show up for them in a way that's non-reactive. But that's more attuned and aware. And that takes work. Yeah. For most for most of us, that takes work. Yeah. So this 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 self-love or self-care as a as an ongoing practice. Um this this seems fundamental, this seems key because so much moves on from that, so much as a, a knock-on effect from that decision to 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 love ourselves, to love our body, to love our psychology, to love our um to love our soul, to love our essence, to love our our spirit. Um, our me- to love our messes. I mean, to love the whole thing. Yeah, know? right. Yeah. And I've never been one who's experienced sort of dripping with honey self-love. I mean, I've talked to people who've had these self-love experiences and, oh, they're so in love with themselves. And I'm not in any way putting that down. I, I wish I could have that experience. Um, I'm not talking about narcissistic self-love. I'm, talking, I'm mm. talking about the self some people actually experience that as a as a real um, essential experience. I haven't that I'm aware of, or if I have, I've not recognized it as such. But to love somebody, you don't have to have gooey feelings. You have to seek to understand them and to care for them, to give them the care that they need. That's what love in practice means. So whether or not person A or person B has experienced self-love as a as an experiential reality is less important than do they love themselves in practice? Are they loving towards themselves? Yeah. Are we are we giving ourselves the gift of the the, the yoga or uh, ensuring that we're moderating our alcohol content or any other yeah. numbing activities? Speaking to myself personally anyway. And giving yourself the uh, the attention, you know, mm. so that, that's that's where. And this society is again part of the insanity is it's it's all about giving you pain in the first place, and then giving you a myriad ways of distracting distracting yourself from the pain, mm-hmm. you know, rather than embracing the vulnerability and giving yourself the attention. That's what the key is. I'm hearing that for you, yoga has been a, a, re, a revived practice recently. Um, I can relate to the power of that in my own experience. What in, in compassionate inquiry is something that you you teach? What what what's what's your broad prescription to? people um including yourself perhaps as we're grappling with our our existence our our pains our messes our um the inherently terminal condition of being human what's uh what what's what what's what's your broad prescription i mean i can encourage people listening and watching to go to your website to read your books. Obviously, you've taken the care to give a detailed uh, response to, to our collective predicament. But what, what might you say other, as, a, as a broad prescription for well-being and health? Um, I'm just struck by the degree of arrogance I would have to have to pretend to have a really good answer to <laughs> um, you know well I don't know that I got anything to add to what I've already said you know I, I don't think I can encapsulate it in, in any kind of a clever or pithy um, phrase or, 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 or paragraph um, I appreciate your humility your honesty um well, I can be extremely arrogant, you know, but um, what can I say? It's ultimately 
the uh, awareness, and I'm waiting for the words to come to me here. Really, that's what I'm waiting for. Um, the awareness that I am worth it, and you are worth it, and we're all worth it, and life is worth it, that the value is in existence itself, and that the human structures that in our ignorance and in our divided societies and in and out of our pain we've created, they don't serve our existence unless we examine them and become conscious about them. So I did a workshop once, I, I participated in a workshop just to identify your calling. And my calling is that people see reality. And um, reality is worth it. And there, was way, and there are ways to approach it. There are ways to get to know it. It takes compassion. It takes curiosity. It takes persistence. Uh, but it always, always, always is rewarding. So I'm, ju I'm just encouraging people to be endlessly curious. And, and compassionate towards everything they find, including and especially themselves. Yeah, aho and uh, amen. I, um, you know, we, we spoke briefly at the start of our conversation that I've had this recent uh, news of, of growth on the, on the, my, in my brain and the, with the tumor and the, the curiosity around what that means. Um, not in a sort of prognostic sense necessarily, but rather like what what's the opportunity or what's the invitation or what's what's my body telling me? Um, and yeah, not not knowing yet um, what what that is. Um, so I appreciate your modeling of uh, humility and 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 not knowing that I think you did rather well to encapsulate in a pithy way a broad prescription having first established that uh, you might you not know be what? able to. Whatever I said, I didn't do it. Um, I just, I was actually pleased to see myself slow down and say, well, let just something come. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't work at it so much, you know. Um, there's a great story about Nijinsky, who was a great ballet dancer in the first half of the sort of a, in the 1920s, 1910s, like a, or uh, a predecessor of, of, of Brezhnikov and, and Nureyev, you know, another great Russian ballet artist. artist. And uh, he would do these astonishing leaps. And he was asked once, well, how do you do it? And he says, I don't do it. When Nijinsky is there, it can't happen. Mm. So part of it is just, um, and I've worked so hard at times, you know, and I'm not not to say anything is bad, not to say anything bad about working, but but really the truth actually you have to open to it, let it come sometimes. And I don't. That's not a lesson that I often apply in practice. I want to I want to make it happen. You know. Yeah, there's a there's a, a sort of softness, a receptivity in what you're pointing to that. Um, is, is not culturally um, trained, that's for sure, especially perhaps as, as, as males. Um, you know, we're, yeah. we're taught to, to work it out or to, um, to think it through. Um, I know that one of the great common factors in extraordinary health outcomes is people listening and following their intuition, an entirely different way of, of, of knowing being willing to ask a question and uh, wait for the answer. Yes, and I have to say uh, uh, that's something that um, you know I've you've you've helped to teach me uh, talking with you and 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 reading your book. You know, the listening. Yeah. I, uh, let me tell you a funny story here. Uh, some years ago, 
when it was still okay to drive and use your 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 cell phone you know i was driving from the hospital to the office and uh, i got a phone call from this nurse who was an indigenous first nation canadian and i would quickly say what i have to say and then then there'd be silence and then she would say something and i'd say and then again there'd be silence and then she would say something and at first i thought to myself what is she slow-minded and then I realized she was actually listening. <laughs> she was actually listening to what I said, and she would consider her answer before jumping in with hers, you know? And to me, this seemed unnatural, you know? And that's, of course, a traditional way. Like, like, like Aboriginal peoples really know how to listen. We've forgotten that. We have to rediscover it. Yeah, and for healthcare professionals to be practicing that and embodying that, to 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 listen to the patient that comes through the door, um, to 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 fully listen, right, to the whole thing. I've I've got a, a great neuro oncologist in the in the U in the UK who, um, he he genuinely listens, and I not not just to the looking at the scan, but and I, and I see it. He'll write in the report to my to my MD or my GP, um, little little sort of personal details or stuff that I've shared, or um, and the, the 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 value of that for my. I mean, I, I I feel very grateful to have someone like that who's very intelligent, technically capable, um, can do the fast talking if necessary, but ultimately has a capacity to be present and to. Um, yeah, to, to deeply listen. And one of the biggest complaints that I hear from patients all the time is my doctors just don't listen. They just don't listen. There's a man you might want to talk to uh, if you haven't already. His name is Louis Mel, M-E-H. The surname is M-E-H-L hyphen Madrona, M-A-D-R-O-N-A. He's a physician um, of First Nations Aboriginal background in the U.S. Is one of his books. It's called mm -hmm. the... Uh, Getting the mind through the power of story. Fascinating guy to talk to. Check out the book. Thank you. Yeah. <sighs> well, I'm mindful of your time and aware that you've taken the care to write all these wonderful books. And so I'm going to direct our viewers and listeners to your website, which is a, a great resource. And I look forward to the, to the next book coming out. Um, yeah, I really appreciate being involved in that. And I appreciate the time you've given us today to, to share a little bit of what's going on in, in your world. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure to spend time with you. Um, sometime in the spring, maybe May, uh, I'm doing a four-day Compassionate Inquiry Program uh, with an organization called Spirituality and Non-Duality, S-A-N-D. Mm. Um, it'll be online, so people can look for that and register for it if they want to. And this new book of mine, it'll be published in April of next year, so perhaps we'll talk again. Uh, certainly, um, uh, as, you, as people read it, they'll see that I have learned from you. And... Uh, that shows up in the book. I'd love to do a, I'd love to do a part two. I'm really intrigued as to what you've learned from me and what my case um, might uh, in, indicate and, and, and represent. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Then. Thank you, Gabor. It's a, a pleasure as always. And uh, thank you to our viewers for joining us today. You can visit loveandtruthparty.org for more interviews and conversations with extraordinary people.